Thanks for joining us today for the Ramp Church podcast. We pray that you will be encouraged and empowered by this week's message and you would encounter God wherever you're listening from. If you'd like to know more about Ramp Church Manchester or would like to partner with us in giving, visit us over on our website ramp.church mcr or find us on social media. Now, let's go into this week's message. I want to open with um, my, my question that I'm going to be really unpacking for the rest of this message. And this is, this is the question. If you're writing notes, I hope you are. You can write this at the top of your page. Um, what is the orienting vision of your life? What's the orienting vision of my life? And a little hint is we all have one. And sometimes when we talk about vision, we highlight the fact that some people have a vision and some people don't. Some people live intentionally, some people don't live intentionally. And in one sense, and maybe a narrow sense of, of, of the, the meaning of vision, that is true. But I'm going to specifically talk about what I'm calling an orienting vision. And this is a picture that appears in your mind or your heart when you consider or perhaps maybe even dream about the life you want or the life you wish you had. And the reason it's called an orienting vision is because um, whatever this is determines more specific visions that follow it. The orienting vision is a meta vision of sorts, and it gives direction to smaller micro visions that come later. And I'm going to unpack these ideas. Um, And I want to suggest from observation that um, what I think most of our visions look like maybe in Manchester. So um, the average resident of Manchester, I would, I would suggest, this is just from observation, maybe you can find yourself in this. I certainly found myself in some of these. Um, it kind of looks like this. It's, it's a Venn diagram that, um, that joins, intersects three different dynamics. And first... It's the dynamic of what I do. So people's orienting vision often revolves around the thing that I do. It's why when you first meet somebody, one of the first questions they say is, what do you do? Anybody hate that question? You're like, the measuring has begun. The post- let the posturing begin. How do I explain my career in a way that, right? right? How do I explain the place that I work? What do I do? It's an orienting vision in our life. But that's not the only one. The second one is, what do I want? And this is, this is I would say, very prominent in the West today. In, in some ways, our, our entire economy is based around this idea of giving people what they want. It is, in fact, a consumer economy, isn't it? So it's based around this idea of what I want. Paul would, Paul would reference this in Philippians chapter 3 when he would say that there are people who live according to the God of their belly. Or some translations say their appetites. So we are driven by the things we desire, the things we want. Actually, that, this idea is so prominent in, in especially Western culture that we will actually determine our fundamental or foundational identity based on the things that I want. So what do I do? What do I want? And the third dynamic, this is just my observations, and I'm, I'm not a social scientist, but I do as a pastor. I, I do meet with quite a, uh, quite a few people. This would be the third dynamic. It is what others think about me. And there's a strong sense of choosing things that I think appear to be the person that I wished I was or that I know other people would admire. And this, in many ways, is a driving force behind social media and the way we engage with social media. So it's not always bad. Sometimes it can be family. But it is, it is a drive to live in a way that others think well about me. And so the, the culmination, the combination of these things is my orienting vision. That next slide. That's my orienting vision. That, that centers. It's, it's, it is the space where these three dynamics converge. And maybe you find yourself in that. Maybe you would put something else in, in that space. But the beautiful news 
about being a follower of Jesus is our orienting vision is already determined for us. It's something that we don't have to figure out in the myriad of options in the world around us. It's something that we can look back at at all of human history and, and we can see how have servants of God oriented their life. What is their macro vision for the orientation of their life that determines everything else they do? And it's quite simple. Are you interested? This is it right here. As Christians, the orienting vision of our lives is God's manifest presence. As Christians, the orienting vision of our lives is God's manifest presence. Jesus explained it this way in John 15, verses 4 and 5. Remain in me and I in you. Then he uses this metaphor to describe what that remaining looks like. Just as a branch is unable to produce fruit by itself unless it remains on the vine, neither can you unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. The one who remains in me manifests presence, and I in him produces much fruit because You can do nothing without me. So there's an abiding and a fruitfulness. That's the essence of our Christian life. There's an abiding and a fruitfulness. And in our language in the ramp, we we use um, the words presence and purpose. And so I'll explain it this way. We are a people of manifest presence and eternal everyday purpose. We're a people of manifest presence and eternal everyday purpose. And today's message, I'm going to unpack the first part of that, manifest presence. We're a people of manifest presence. And then later on, we'll unpack this idea of eternal everyday purpose. So we're a people of manifest presence and eternal everyday purpose. So what is God's manifest presence? Well, before I I get to that, let, let me show you this diagram. So compared to the other Venn diagram, this is a diagram that looks like living in God's manifest presence, and living out an eternal everyday purpose. Our life is centered around God's, God's um, uh, manifest presence, but just like a vine and a branch, then we produce fruit. And the outflow of that orienting vision produces an eternal, what I call an eternal everyday purpose. It's an everyday purpose that has the taste and, and the flavor of eternity on it. It's a purpose that fits into God's eternal plan. So when, et- when I enter into eternity and out of time, I can look back on my life and I'm not sad about it. Because the things I still hold left over from my, from my everyday life, I will continue to hold in eternity. And Jesus talks a lot about the things that we can create or hold in time that we will not hold in eternity. But the beautiful thing about living as a Jesus follower is you have the opportunity to now figure out and learn from Jesus. What are the things that I can apprehend or hold or maintain or steward now that I will apprehend, hold, and and, and steward in the days in the age to come? And so that is your eternal everyday purpose. So what is the manifest presence of God? Well, it's helpful to understand, first of all, before we understand the manifest presence of God, that the manifest presence of God, this next slide, is not, oh, you skipped one is not the omnipresence of God. They're not the same thing. And when you, when you come into a community, and, and maybe this was a surprise for you when you came into the ramp community, and sometimes, um, sometimes we're loud. Have you noticed that? Sometimes, just a bit. Sometimes we sing the same song over and over for a long time. I don't know if you noticed, but we just did a, a 30 plus minute worship set, and we did two songs. Part of that is, is because we're on a pursuit. We're not singing songs. We're on a pursuit. Um, in fact, there's many of, of many of the songs that we sing here at the ramp that I don't particularly enjoy. They're not my style. I, I'm not at home, like, queuing them up on Spotify. It's not my flavor. But it's not about my listening enjoyment. 
It is about facilitating my pursuit. So the message of the song helps facilitate the pursuit of my heart. It's a combination of the offering of what I wished I could say to God, but I don't know how. So a songwriter created something and musicians who've spent their entire lives sharpening their craft to be able to unify a room in music and then like incense burning to the Lord, offer it as one unified sacrifice to God. So it's the combination of this unified song to the Lord with things we know God likes to hear. So God has emotions and opinions and preferences. He has a personality. And in heaven, he has, he has desires and things he wants to hear from his people. And it, it, we'll get onto this later. It, it really starts with a song of honesty. So that's why it's important that the song reflects something I actually want to say to him. That's important. But the second thing is the song then needs to reflect something God wants to hear. So the song is not about my listening enjoyment. The song is about facilitating a, a pursuit of the living God. Why? Because we're after his manifest presence. That's what we're after. It's not the same as his omnipresence. His omnipresence is the thing that exists everywhere. So sometimes people are surprised when they come to a church who's pursuing the presence of God because they're like, well, isn't God everywhere? And why are you yelling? He's not deaf. Is there a reason the music needs to be so loud? I think God has perfect hearing. He can hear your thoughts, right? And oftentimes we have on our mind the omnipresence of God because he exists everywhere. But here's what you have to realize, and we see this in the life and ministry of Jesus. Just because he exists everywhere does not mean he's manifest everywhere. In other words, his presence is not being experienced equally in all places at all times. This is not something that we're just dis- discovering now. This is, this is a theme that we see throughout Scripture. Psalms 104 captures God's omnipresence. Uh, another thing that I, uh, another way I like to think about God's omnipresence is it's his sustaining presence. It's the quality of his being that sustains all. All that is. And Psalm, the psalmist is celebrating this reality in Psalms 104, verses 27 through 30. This is what he says. All of them, he's talking about earth's creatures. All of earth's creatures wait for you, God, to give them their food at the right time. When you give it to them, they gather it. When you open your hand, they're satisfied with good things. When you hide your face, they're terrified. When you take away their breath, they die and return to the dust. When you send your breath, they're created and you renew the surface of the ground. That's just, that's just the psalmist way in a poetic way of saying you sustain all of life. By your very being, the cosmos are held up. The, the, the planets are moving. The, the universe is continuing to expand. And that is simply the result of, 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 of at the very beginning in Genesis chapter 1, God saying, Be. And his word is still expanding. It's still creating. It's still moving. And by his very being, he sustains all that it is. But that isn't the manifest presence of God. Again, we see this in the ministry of Jesus. Jesus was walking around and most of the people he interacted with had no idea he was God. So they're literally around the creator of the universe and they just think he's a man. They were in his presence, but they didn't reveal, they didn't realize he was, he was God. This is, this is the omnipresence of God. People are walking around Manchester not realizing God is there because he is there. But the difference is he's not manifest in that place yet. And when God manifests, what happens is his character, his attributes, his desires, and his activity break into the creative world and they make themselves known or they even impose themselves on the creative world. This is ultimately what happens in the manifest presence of God. Manifest presence is when the hidden God becomes visible. This is a fundamental idea in what it means to even be a Christian as opposed to other faiths or worldviews. Christians believe that the invisible God made himself visible in and as Jesus Christ. 
in the first century on the Mediterranean coast in the land of Israel. He lived a fairly normal working class life, began his ministry at the age of 30, taught, prophesied, debated about his heavenly kingdom coming to earth. He worked miracles. He healed. He cast out demons. He supernaturally restored people's minds and and emotions. He was eventually tortured and executed as a religious and political threat. And then on the third day, as God's ultimate vindication of his life and message, he rose from the dead. And he taught his final messages and instructions for 40 days to hundreds of his followers before ascending back to heaven. That was the hidden God became manifest in a specific moment of time. And it was so significant that we're still talking about it 2,000 years later. That the greatest movement in the history of the world that historians are still trying to understand started in this little working class man's life from the Near East 2,000 years ago. Why? Because it was God. It was God who stepped out of his omnipresence into a manifestation of who he is and and the echoes and the ripples of that manifestation we are still experiencing today. You see, this is much different than a deistic God. Maybe today you're exploring faith. This is part of the essence of Christianity. This is much different than a deistic God distant from his creation, but nevertheless sustaining, or maybe a divine energy that's the source of life, but a truly impersonal force or a pantheon of gods manifesting themselves in nature or circumstances or gifts and disabilities. This is a God both transcendent and deeply personal. It's a God both beyond comprehension or even category and profoundly relevant and relatable all at the same time. We see God's manifest presence in stories in in the Bible like the dedication of Solomon's temple. In 1 Kings 8, when God's glory was so present that he manifested as a physical cloud. And the cloud was so weighty that the priests in the temple could no longer do their work and they fell down before the cloud. God's omnipresence became manifest. We see it in Elijah's standoff with the prophets of Baal in 1 Kings 18. When God erupted in physical fire. We see it in the upper room on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. When fire appeared over the heads of every person present. And they began to pray. um, They began to pray heavenly languages. And miraculously preached in unlearned earthly languages. In Revelation 1 we see it when John the Apostle had been exiled to an island called Patmos for his faith. Jesus appeared to him and Jesus' appearance was so spectacular that John fell on his face like a dead man. God became manifest. Job expressed his own shift from God's omnipresence to God's manifest presence when he said this, I heard reports about you but now my eyes have seen you. Some of you young people who've grown up in church, there's a shift that comes for you because you've heard about him from your parents' faith, from the things the youth pastor's telling you. But at some moment, at some point, God will make himself real to you. And that's when things start to change in your life because We can inherit many things in life. We can inherit wealth. We can inherit um, laws. That's why we still have a nation here, because we inherit laws, a constitution. But you can't inherit faith. You can't pass down that. Faith happens because the revelation on who God is comes to you. Comes to you. God manifests himself to you. And young people, that is the shift that's going to happen in your life. I remember some of my early encounters. Can I just tell you some of those? My, uh, my childhood, I was only occasionally in church. Uh, my parents were split up. So when I was at my dad's house, we would, we would occasionally go to like an Anglican church. And um, then at my mom's house, we would do like a Christmas service. So we would like go see like a Christmas choir. And that was basically, that was, the only, that was my only experience with church um, as, as, a, as a kid growing up. 
Um, but then somewhere in high school, my mom decided to take my sister and I to church. And so we started going to church. Um, and I, I immediately started to have this affection for God. It's just like there was just something about being around God that drew me. And I even started to read the Bible some. And, and it, it's obvious that God was doing something in my life, but I'd never met God. I'd never encountered the Lord. And a few years after that, I left church. I was like, okay, that's not for me. Um, and we, we lived in a, a, a small town in Middle Tennessee, just south of Nashville. And um, my sister started attending this youth group um, in a little town next to us. And she was begging me to go to this youth group. And I'm like, I'm, there's no way I'm going to this youth group. I, I have no interest. Um, I was, um, I was into music. I was in a punk rock band. Come on. <laughs> Spikes, chains, loud music. It, it's the worst music you've ever heard in your life. Okay. And we were awful, uh, but we had a lot of fun. So, um, but I, I heard, uh, we lived across the street from like a community center, a, rec- a recreational center that had like a public pool and like a, a gym, basketball gym. And I heard that there was like a band playing over there. So I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm, this is, yes, I'm going to check out what this is. So I just walk across the street, like little punk rock kid, like Jinkos. Come on, anybody remember some Jinkos? Nobody remembers Jinkos. Jinkos, the, the pant leg on Jinkos is like this big. Like when you, bought the, when you bought the jeans, it had like the size of the pant leg in inches. Not just the waist, but like the pant leg is giant. So I go, I, I go across the street, punk rock kid, and I walk in and I, you know, I just thought it was music, but it, it was a worship band. And it was young people, it was a youth worship band. And I, I walked in and the presence of the Lord was in that room. But I didn't know what it was. I'd never experienced anything like it. So I walk in. It was in the middle of a gym. And I, I, I was stunned. I was mesmerized. And I just walk over to the side of the gym. And I'm standing on the wall. So everybody's kind of in the middle. And I'm just kind of standing on the wall. And I'm just like, I am eyes locked on this worship band. I'd never seen anything like it. I'd never experienced the presence of the Lord like that. So nothing happened that night. Um, I just left, went back home, but I just couldn't shake it. I couldn't get off my mind. So eventually I tell my sister, okay, I'll go to this church thing with you. So I show up and it was a, it was a legitimate move of God in this youth group, this, this small church youth group where the youth group was almost the size of the whole church, the, the adults in the church. And I walked in, youth pastor greeted me. Someone had told him that I played guitar and he said, why don't you come back next week and you can play with our worship band. I mean, he didn't even know if I was saved. But I'm like, you, you want me to play music? I will be anywhere if you want me to play music. I'll, I'll say yes. So I showed up the next week, um, and he puts me on stage. Didn't even know if I could play guitar. I mean, he's just like, okay, yeah, hop up there. And it was through worship. It was just a matter of weeks that it was through worship that I encountered the living God. And it was through singing to a God that I didn't really even know yet. I had seen modeled before me. But it was just through singing about who he was that he decided to come to to a boy who was messed up, had had no idea what I was looking for in life. And I experienced the love of God in in a tangible way. To the point that, and it was a series of weeks where I began to encounter the Lord, that I could no longer play my instrument. So I'm just playing music. But this, the, the presence of the Lord came, came over my life to the point that I was just weep, just break down weeping. And the only way I can explain it is it just felt like the love of God was just exploding in my heart. I simultaneously felt unworthy and deeply accepted. I felt like I was in the presence of, some, of the most real thing I had ever experienced. And it was far beyond me, but more personal and, more, and closer than anything I'd ever known before. Has anybody ever experienced anything like that? That started in me a journey in pursuit of God that I am still on to this day. And in many ways, the reason why there is a Ramp Church Manchester is because I'm still in pursuit of the God who who 
who when I was a, when I was a high schooler, 17 years old, who, who invaded a, a, a stage in a, in a worship band when I was playing music that I didn't even know, and he invaded my life there, and I've, I've, the rest of my life is just continuing to pursue him and then do the things he asked me to do. I never set off to be a pastor. If you'd asked me 10 years ago, are you going to be a pastor? I'd have been like, excuse me. <laughs> Come again? So my, what started my pursuit is not, I want to start a church. What started this pursuit is, I want to know this God who touched me. Who impacted my life. And it was just one step of obedience at a time. I didn't know the end result. It's not like he's, it's not multi-level marketing for spiritual people. If you do this, you'll be really successful and then other people can do it and you can lead other people to do it and then you'll get it. No, 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 it's not that. It is one tiny little yes at a time. That's what it is. And all in pursuit of the living God. I'm reminded of Charles Finney's story. Have you ever heard of Charles Finney? The great revivalist. He was a lawyer um, who had a, just an, a radical encounter with God. Um, he decided he needed to read the Bible simply because he recognized there was so much of the Bible in law. So he just started reading the Bible to understand the law better. But the Bible is a living book. And he didn't just find words. He found the God behind the living book. And he would go on then to be the primary minister and leader of the Second Great Awakening in America. He describes his, his initial encounter with God like this. This is what he says. The Holy Spirit descended upon me in a manner that seemed to go through me, body and soul. I could feel the impression like a wave of electricity going through and through me. Indeed, it seemed to come in waves and waves of liquid love. For I could not express it in any other way. It seemed like the very breath of God. I can recollect distinctly that it seemed to fan me like immense wings. No words can express the wonderful love that was shed abroad in my heart. I wept aloud with joy and love. And I do not know, but I should say, I literally bellowed out the unutterable gushings of my heart. These waves came over me and over me and over me, one after the other, until I recollect I cried out, I shall die if these waves continue to pass over me. I said, Lord, I cannot bear any more, yet I had no fear of death. This is the manifest presence of God. The omnipresent God wants to make himself known to you. And I want to take this a step further, and this is important to understand in our vision series, and it's this principle right here. The church should be primarily known as the place where God is. I'm thankful for everything else we do as a church. I'm thankful for our communities that are starting. I, literally, um, I, I would not still be a Christian. Who knows if I, would, if I would still be alive if it was not for the relationships in my life. I mean, I, in many ways, it is the people who have who have loved me and chosen to invest in me and prayed for me. Uh, it's the reason I'm here. But the church should not primarily be known as a community of people. Also, I'm, I'm genuinely grateful for the, the works of justice. Um, throughout history, you can trace our hospitals uh, globally, our serving organizations, our aid organizations, to Christians who, who get a biblical vision, a worldview that God, God's desire is to make all wrong things right, and then they give their lives to acts of justice. I'm thankful for it. We're going to do more of it in Ramp Church. There are many things that are stirring in that regard that I, I will announce later on. Many things stirring in that regard. But primarily, the church is the place that God is. Where do I get this idea? Well, I get it because the central problem that the Bible 
shows that all of creation has is the problem of sin. It's the problem the Bible is trying to solve. And the central problem of sin is not addiction or hindering habits or the brokenness it causes in relationships or the endless struggle for meaning and purpose. The most central problem of sin is separation between us and God. That's the most fundamental problem of sin. And this isn't separation from God's omni-sustaining presence. It's separation from God's manifest, tangible presence. We can argue theologically on how much the Garden of Eden was a blend of physical and spiritual realms, and we can argue about its practical purpose of sustaining Adam and Eve's lives with food and shelter. But when the first humans were removed from the garden, it was not primarily a separation from a nice place to live or sustain them. It was fundamentally a separation from God himself. So the Christian call then is to restore the separation that sin caused. The primary solution that the Christian church brings to the world is to restore the relationship of God and man that has been broken. This is why our most foundational, fundamental call as the church is to be the place where God manifests. And I don't just mean in the four walls of this building. I mean the church as God's people. That means that wherever you work, church is open. If you're wondering where does Ramp Church meet, In one sense, we meet on Sunday mornings at the Message Church at 4 p.m. and 6.30 p.m. But in a greater sense, we meet at 8 a.m. at Pratt when you show up for your shift. We meet on Oxford Road as you're walking to your classes at Uni Place building. That's what Ramp Church is meeting right there. We're meeting at Talk on University Green. Uh, At least I hope we are because I'm there often working. We meet there. We meet in boardrooms around this city where people are getting together to talk about the next strategy of, of, of business for their corporation or their charity. We're meeting in engineers' offices where people are writing up plans and blueprints for the new skyscrapers that are coming or safety protocol or health. We're meeting where the church is. And God is desiring and designing the church to be the place where he manifests. Not just that can, can call people to his sustaining presence, but can invite people into a real encounter. Because we carry the solution to the problem of sin's separation from God. And all our controlling habits and our addictions, those are evidences of what it looks like to be separate from God. Yes, we repent of those things. Of course we do. Yes, God separates us from that sin. But it's because when we are restored to relationship with God, we are also restored to the source of life itself. And the reason why Adam and Eve, when they were removed from the garden, the reason why death ensued is is not, not because this is a punishment, but because life can only be found in relationship with God, the source of life. That is your call. The church should be primarily known as the place where God is. And the Christian call to pursue, contend for, and receive God's manifest presence is, to, is a call to restore the most fundamental reality of Eden, living in proximity of God. Richard Owen Roberts says this, the sobering truth is that the greatest hindrance to the growth of Christianity in today's world is the absence of the manifest presence of God from the church. So if this is true, in general, 
How is this relevant in a more specific sense? And it leads us to this question, Ramp Church. How do we find it? How do we find him? That's what we're going to talk about over the next few minutes. I want to give you three simple ways. There are many ways to find the Lord. And the first thing I want to do is I want to encourage you to make this your orienting vision. (laughs) That you make this your life's pursuit. Jesus said, unless this is your life's pursuit, unless this is your reality, you can do nothing. We just read it. All of your fruitfulness flows from this reality. So how do we find God's manifest presence? I want to I tell you three ways. We find God through, first of all, the words God speaks. The words God speaks. And that starts with scripture. Um, some of you have been in church for a long time. Maybe you're a bit disappointed by that answer, but scripture is living. It's breathing. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says this. All scripture is God-breathed. Isn't that amazing? And it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Let me say it this way. The scripture God breathed is still breathing. And the first way we encounter God is by getting in the book. Some of us, this is not a guilt trip, okay? Because uh, the sure way to, to induce guilt in church is to talk about how much are you praying and how much you're reading the Bible, okay? So this is not a guilt trip. It, it will be short-lived if that's your motivating factor. The motivation has to be, I want to live in God. I want to find God. It's like, it's like we spoke about at the very beginning. Uh, if you just have a passion for the act of praying, your prayer life is not gonna last very long because praying gets boring, Really boring. But if your passion is the God of prayer, you will pray because you want the God of prayer. I, I, this, this reality is so real that I know more people who are passionate about prayer that hate praying than people who are passionate about prayer but don't like God. I know more people who are continuing to, to center their life around prayer who, who just are not people with a propensity to pray. They're, they're just not praying people. I, I'm not really a praying person. It's like I, I didn't just wake up one day and be like, I love praying. I love the God who answers prayer. So I pray because I want him. This is the same way. You, you need to read your word because God breathed it and you love his breath. You love the things that come out of his mouth. You love him. And if God is is breathing something, I want to be where he is. So you get in the book and you're like, well, I don't know. It's confusing. It's long. I don't know where to start. Well, that's a different message. And I've preached on that before. But let me just say, you just read it until he speaks. That's what you do. Sometimes you open it up and it's one verse. I mean, it's like the first verse your eyes hit. It's like... God just spoke to me through that. Sometimes it's 10 chapters. I was speaking to somebody the other day and they said, you know what I've started doing? On my commute, I've started doing audio Bible on my walk. I was like, oh, that's, a, that's such a great idea. They said, I, I said, I listened to 15 chapters today on my commute. I was like, <coughs> how many? If you did 15 chapters a day, you could read the entire Bible in about four months. If you're listening to 15 chapters a day, God's going to speak to you. Can I just say that? If you are in the book for 15 chapters a day, you're going to hear a word. He's going to speak to you somehow. And you you go, well, I don't have a theology degree. I don't know how to understand it all. You'll get there. It needs to be a lifelong pursuit. Some of the smartest people in the history of the world have given their entire lives to understanding that book. Okay? It it is vast beyond, beyond comprehension. But it's also simple enough that just one word can meet you right where you're at. 
Sometimes God will remind me of a verse when I'm heading into a meeting that I'm anxious about. Just one verse. So the first place that you can find God's manifest presence is in the words he speaks. For some of you, this is even the prophetic word. So it's not just the written word, but it is the now word. There also would not be a ramp church if there wasn't the prophetic word. Because it was God's word through the mouth of other people who were praying for me, who were praying for us, who were praying for Manchester, that, that even gave the specific direction to, for us to step out and do what we're doing. We find God through the words he speaks, number one. Number two, we find God through the places God hides. Did you know God hides? This is ultimately the fundamental idea behind him being omni and manifest. The reason why he's manifest some places and not others is because he's hiding. When Jesus asked, when the disciples asked Jesus, um, why do you speak in parables? His, uh, uh, essentially, his answer was this, so people won't understand. <laughs> and now, I mean, as a teacher, as a Bible teacher, what if I had on my website, joereacher.com, that doesn't exist, joereacher.com doesn't exist, joeandstacy.com does. What if it said, the guy who speaks things people can't understand? Sign up to my mailing list. <laughs> that, that was his response. Why do you speak in parables? So people can't understand. And then he said this. To the one who has, more will be given. But to the one who doesn't have, what they have will be taken away. What was Jesus alluding to? He's alluding to what, to, to what Josh Green said earlier. This Matthew 16 idea. That Peter... What you just said, man didn't tell you. You got that from God himself. And what Jesus is saying is if someone has postured themselves and humility and hunger to the point that they've received what I'm saying from God, that is a seed and they will be given more. But we know the people who, who didn't understand didn't have nothing because Jesus said what they have will be given away. What does he mean? What they have was not given to them by God. They trusted their own intellect or their own reasoning. They trusted the resources of man instead of the resources of God. So God hides himself and reveals himself through revelation. Let me show you somewhere else God God hides. Matthew 25, 34 through 40. Some of you already saw this coming. Then the king will say to those on his right, this is Jesus speaking a parable. Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry. Jesus is talking about himself. I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you took care of me. I was in prison and you visited me. Then the righteous will answer Jesus, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in or, or without clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters, sisters of mine, you did for me. This is what Jesus is saying right here. God hides himself in the hungry, poor, destitute, outcast, and needy. He's hiding. He's there. He's ready to manifest himself. But he's hiding. He's hiding other places too. Matthew 18, 20 says this, For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there among them. This is, this is where else he's hiding. God is hiding in community. This is why communities matter. Because God hides there. The, the, something that I've learned about pastoral ministry is God often hides himself, this next principle, in the places you need to find him. 
I'll say that like this. If you need relationships, but you're resistant, God hides himself in relationships. If you need to step out in purpose and in faith, he will hide him in purpose and in faith. He'll hide him in the place you've yet to go. Because when you discover him and you want more of him, we often pray this prayer. I've heard it a thousand times. God, I want more of you. He takes that serious. But he's also deeply committed to your maturity and your growth. So the way he answers you is by hiding himself in the place that requires you to grow to get him. So he's over here, you're over there. And he's like, well, I've been, I've been saying for years that you need, to re, you need to be on outreach team. You need to be pastoring the streets. And you're like, well, God, I, I don't want to do that, but I want more of you, Lord. I just want more of you, God. And he's going, I'm over here. Come get me. I manifest myself right here. Why? Because God hides himself in the places you need to find him. It can be in serving others. It can be relationships. It can be in giving. Some of you, God's wanting to develop a spirit of generosity in your heart. And what he's done is he's, he's removed himself from the places you've continually found him throughout your life. And you're wondering where he's gone. But he's hiding himself in the, in the step of obedience you've yet to take. So he's, fi- he's hiding himself in the generosity you've yet to embrace. He's going, well, you know, I've, I've, I speak every Sunday about tithing and giving and, you know, but you've yet to do that. And something's going to happen. You're going you're gonna to sense his manifestation as soon as it leaves your hand. This is not a fundraising pitch. I've experienced this in my own life. This is a reality of the kingdom. So number one. We find God through the words God speaks. Number two, we, play, we find God through the places God hides. And number three, and this is where we're going to end. We find God in the posture God visits. And I want to call you to three postures as we end today. The first one is the posture of Honesty. Band, you can, go, you can go ahead and come up. Come on up. The first one is the posture of honesty. This is the posture God visits. This is how I'm defining honesty in, in the context of this message. I'm willing to be known for who I really am. How, how, how do you answer those questions like, how are you? How do you answer that question? <laughs> How are you? How do you answer the question like, is there anything I can pray for you about? Oh yeah, just dealing with some things at work. Just pray for me. Thanks. How are you? Oh, I'm good. You know, I'm good. Yeah, I just, I mean, there's some challenges, but overall I'm good. But honesty is being willing to be known for who you really are. And what I've discovered with the Lord is he's really into honesty. Like, like really into it. And this is one of the postures that God visits. Is when you get real with him. And uh, can I just pick, pick on the men in the room for a minute? We have trouble with this with gents. Sometimes we, we have trouble even being honest with ourselves. But we really have trouble getting honest with our, with our brothers. But oftentimes the freedom that you're desiring is found in this right here. It, it, it's why confession is an essential part of a New Testament life. And there is, there's a huge drive of, of confessing to God. But the Bible doesn't stop there. It says, confess your sins one to another. And it doesn't say, so you're forgiven. It says, so you may be healed. You'll find forgiveness from God, but you find healing when you confess one to another. The first posture that God visits is honesty. I'm willing to be known for who I really am. The second one is humility. 
Here's how I'm defining it in the context of this message. What I need, I can't get on my own. So the first step is, is, is humility. What are you hiding or what are you framing or what are you posturing? What are you hope what, what what conclusion are you leading other people to that is actually not real about you? Like well, I didn't lie. Yeah, but did you lead them to a conclusion about you that actually isn't true? The second one is humility. It's the recognition that what I need I can't get on my own. That's why Jesus would say in his apex message, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. One translation says, Best are, blessed are those who recognize their need for God. What I need, I can't get on my own. And then the third posture that God visits is this, hunger. And here's the revelation. God won't give me something I'm willing to live without. Can I say it like this? He will not be one option in your buffet of life choices. This is the way he told the, he said that same concept to the Israelites like this. You shall have no other God before me. But what that means is we don't control the way he interacts with my life. I don't get to choose how he engages with my life choices. If he's God, he chooses everything about my life. That's hunger. <laughs> it's recognizing he's ready to give me all the things I can't live without. That births hunger in our hearts and it bursts the cry at the end of that definition right there I want more God and I know I'm in a room full of people who want more of the Lord would you stand on your feet all around this room